If this is your first time, welcome to the Startup Tank. The Startup Tank's the premier online investor pitch show. We're Shark Tank for climate and impact companies. If you've got a pre-seed or seed stage company moving the world forward, be sure to apply at thestartuptank.com. I'm your host, Matt Ward. I run Forward VC, uh, early stage, uh, pre-seed and seed stage syndicate focused on climate and impact companies. To learn more about us, visit forward.vc. And this entire program is pre presented and brought to you guys by Deva, the best way to set up a digital SPV. If you are trying to raise money for your company or you're trying to deploy a lot of capital into early stage companies, for instance, Leva is a great way to do that. If you check out forward.vc slash Leva, you can set up your digital SPV in five minutes. You can have five members, five million. It's all the same. Very fast, simple, easy. And thanks to Leva for sponsoring the startup tank. But now I think it's time for us to jump into it because we've run it a little behind as usual, but we've got an incredible panel lined up for you guys today. So today we're joined by Alex Languth, a general partner and founding partner of Uber Morgan Ventures, one of the top, uh, one of the top climate VCs, not just in Europe, but worldwide. And Fabian uh, Erici, I'm terrible with names, of Norskin VC, another of the top climate impact funds. I'm going to give them a second to introduce themselves, then we'll share a little bit more about the startup tank, how things work. Before we jump into the pitches, does that sound good for everybody? Awesome, then I will let, I know Alex very well, so I'll let Fabian go first. Fabian, do you want to tell us a little bit more about you, about Norskin, and what you're looking for? Happy to, Matt, and thank you so much for, for inviting me. Yeah, so Norskin VC is a 125 million euro fund. We were actually founded by one of the co-founders to Klarna, Niklas Adelbert, and we have the the broader mission to promote impact entrepreneurs as, as much as we can. And we do that in a few different ways. But the, the thing that we're focusing on today is the, the impact VC. And we have been around now for almost six years ago, uh, six years, and uh, have been one of the early, earlier impact investors in Europe, at least. We have a quite broad impact scope. So we invest all across the UN sustainable development goals, ranging from uh, from healthcare to education, social inclusion, but then around 70 to 80% of our portfolio is actually in climate tech. We invest quite early stage, so seed series A stage, uh, with a one to four million euro ticket and have a European mandate for our investments. And uh, yeah, that, that's about Norskin VC. A few words on myself as well. Uh, I'm, I've been there now for two, year, two years. I've been working in uh, at Boston Consulting Group before, so I'm a management consultant from background, but then I have an engineering heart somewhere behind there, so I'm an engineer uh, from the start. It's super nice to be here and really looking forward to all the pitches. Thanks, thanks for sharing and sharing more about Norskin. And Alex, can you tell us a bit more about Uber Morgan? Sure. Um, hey, everybody. My name is Alex. I'm a founding partner at Uber Morgan Ventures. Um, I have been working in climate tech and energy tech for the past uh, about 10 years. Um, I also was in consulting before, but at McKinsey, um, have started investing four years ago, and we started with Uber Morgan about three years ago. Um, we invest in early stage climate tech startups, um, meaning pre-seed, seed, um, all across Europe. Um, we focus on energy, transportation, food and ag, uh, industrial resource efficiency, and carbon capture. 
Um, so far, we've made um, about eight, I think not about exactly 18 investments that I should know, uh, hopefully 19 by tomorrow. So about one investment a month. Um, so we've been busy the last couple of years. Um, and um, we are an evergreen fund, which is um, maybe something that's a bit special in the industry. So we have no lifetime, we can um, stay involved for as long as we want. Um, and we also embrace different types of investing, um, meaning, for example, token investments, um, uh, which we have yeah, recently started doing as well. Um, yeah, period so far. Good thing you recently did and not a little bit ago or you'd be way down. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the crypto market's been being nailed lately. And yeah. a little bit a little bit more about me, guys. Um, as I said, my name is Matt Ward. I run Forward VC. So the number four ward.vc, we invest in co companies that move the world forward. It's a climate and impact syndicate of pre-seed and seed stage companies. If you're an accredited investor and interested in learning more, please visit forward.vc. But this, this is the startup tank. And if it's your first time here, you're in for a treat. We've got some incredible companies planned. They're going to pitch from across the globe and share what they're doing on moving the world forward. Every company, if it's your first time here, will get five minutes on the clock. And we're pretty brutal with that. We'll have timers going, cut you off mid-sentence if we have to. And at the end of the night, the three of us, Alex, Fabian, and I, will choose a startup of the night. So uh, the winner of today's startup tank, so to speak. There's no cash prize, unfortunately, at the end of this other than the investors here and the ones tuning in from around the world. So it's now time for you guys to take it away and blow away investors. Is everybody ready? I will take the silence as a yes and hand it over to Enrico with Earth Automations. Enrico's doing some incredible stuff with revolutionizing the, uh, the farming industry and kind of ag tech, AI, and robotics all into one. You're up, Enrico. Can you see my screen? Yes, we see your screen. Perfect. Hello, everyone. I am Enrico. I am the CFO of Earth Automation. We do autonomous robots for agriculture. Okay. Um, today in Europe, 270 billion of euro of the European budget are wasted instead of invested for income support to agriculture because there is a huge lack of sustainability. Today, there are repetitive and discriminating activity that bring also to a lack of personnel because no one wants to drive anymore the tractor. Even more, 56% of deadly accidents in, uh, in the sector are mainly caused by misusage of tractor. Our solution is to can save 720 billion in the same period, 24 hours, seven days operation, and 99.9% .9 of safety. Our solution is Dute, uh, Robocrop. Uh, it's a patent solution today in Italy, is pending the European uh, uh, patent. It's IoT cloud connector, it's standard with them, and with the, with the uh, it's compatible with the standard implements today used in agriculture and is ready to electric. Today, this one is a diesel because it's more you know, uh, used by the customer. Its autonomy is today more than 10, per 10 hours, 3.5 tons, cut to 75 horsepower. Uh, we also won last year the EMA Newelty. EMA is the first uh, um, uh, event in Europe about agricultural machinery. Our main competitor, <clears throat> today there are three uh, solutions close to the tractor. There is 
as Robotian AGXIT, unfortunately, is a bit covered in AGXIT. And we are the, the unique that can both go in Orchard and Arable. And we use visual navigation to navigate inside the field. And we are also the most competitive one. Uh, our market is a growing market that we're going to reach 12 billion in 2026 with a CAG of 19%. Our business model uh, is going two directions. From a direct perspective, you know, we do direct sell directly to a G company through a full rent or as a robot as a service to agricultural company, but we also sell our robot through indirectly through dealers that are today the, the main point of uh, purchase for a traditional agricultural company. <clears throat> our team is quite uh, uh, heterogeneous with the Fausto that is our CEO coming from the agricultural sector. He has an, an agricultural company team too. I am the finance guy with the three, six years of, of, of experience in financial and marketing and sale. And there is Luigi, our CDO with 20 years and more of experience in robotic sector in manufacturing. We have also one software with uh, developer that is a mathematical, uh, mathematical computational guy, two engineer and one senior guy. And we have an advisory committee quite heterogeneous from agricultural uh, expert to also export of director of international company. Our revolution in data, this year we have already reached 246K of revenue from 60K last year with four customers. And we have already three dealers that contacted us that want to purchase our sales, our product, and 11 letter of intent signed with potential customer. Today, we have won already uh, with, the, um, with the fourth prototype, the Galileo Master, and also the AIMA Innovation, as already said. And we have already raised 260K of investment. It's pending the WIPO, and we start to sell, and we start to have the first customer. We are looking for 3.7 million, of which 1.4 already commitment. And we want to do to that uh, a fleet of 30 units that we're going to be releasing in the fourth quarter of 23. <clears throat> so, but why invest in us? Because we are expecting to have a strong future growth with high product flexibility and technology that is also scalable also in other sectors. One of our main partners, as an example, is Leonardo, that is the first defense company of, uh, of Italy also other agricultural company and also other institution, primary institution, like also Levi Lash of Credit Agricole. Thank you all for the attention. I would like now to have some question and I open to reply. Thanks a lot. Awesome, thanks for sharing Enrico. I'm gonna open the floor up to Alex and Fabi and do you have any questions for Enrico? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I can go first, Alex, if you, if you may. Sure. Uh, no, it's super interesting. And I, I, I love uh, ag tech in general. And I think this is a very interesting approach. Maybe one question is on, on what kind of applications can your autonomous robot actually solve? Like, I understand that. I have, I have a slide for that because it's quite, you know, one of uh, the questions that raise more often. So let me just go. So we do, for example, spraying defoliation, shredding, topping, plugging, thinning, shot remover, everything that is compatible today with a CAT2. And, uh, you know, it's also, we can also work with agricultural company directly to, to do what they need. You know, today as a startup, you know, we try to be much flexible as possible to our customer. So we do also robot as re on request. So if they need anything, we will build what they want. Hmm. 
And you can do all of this. Uh, and try also to. Sorry. No, you can do do all of this with your, with your autonomous software, even like uh, the things where where that is a bit more non-standardized. You are saying, um, you know, in reality, we can do that. Uh, um, it's regulated by the the customer. You know, it depends a lot also in the level of automation of the implement. So, for example, the treating and the tilling and also the plonging, the, the spraying, you know, is an activity that uh, at the end you you parameterize what tar the the speed and the level of uh, of uh, spraying, and so at the end you can go and move autonomously inside so it needs to be parameterized by the customer itself yeah okay understand. okay and then basically the customer doesn't need uh his, his normal equipment anymore right you completely replace it or is, do you kind of need no both? no he, he can use his standard exp uh, equipment this is one more one of our you know straights at the end you know because he can use starter implements and um, on the other side uh, uh, obviously it depends on the implement you know because obviously if they are uh, an implement that need a lot of regulation by the consumer or are they are still manual you know a lot of them in reality today are autonomous also you know so uh, obviously uh, there are someone that still need for example a person beyond they do the movement of the machinery obviously in that case you know we cannot use it but we our what we want to do is to preserve what are, what are the methodology that they use it in agriculture? Hmm. And uh, maybe you can double click a bit on the regulate, uh, regulation part. Because I think in, in Switzerland, you always need somebody to be, you know, able to intervene <clears throat> at any time, I think, right? Okay. No, today we don't need anyone to check it. You know, we have studied a solution on that because we are always the machine cannot go uh, faster than six kilometers per hour. Okay. In this way, we avoid all the certification needed. So in reality, you don't need anyone to, to look at the machine. And also, you know, from this point of view, we, we have three levels of security. We have LiDAR, we have visual navigation system that also stops if there is someone approaching the machine. And there is also, you know, a frontal bar, a frontal bumper, you know, if it touches the, uh, we're going to stop the machine. This is a surrounding of security to avoid any kind of problem from this point of view. And also, you know, the speed of six kilometers or hour, you know, it's not so so crazy speed. Yeah. Fabian, you want to have another question? Otherwise, I yeah, absolutely. I have, I have many, but I don't know how many we have time for. Uh, but if you want, you... we can organize a call <laughs> to dive. <laughs> yeah, but Enrico, you said that you had some competitors. Also with the technician team. Yeah, yeah, cool. But you said you had some some competitors already. Uh, but what what would you say is your yeah. main technical advantage uh, towards them? Our competitive advantage, I think, is more focused on the visual artificial intelligence system of navigation. Because we more we go and we follow a path, and better we will gonna perform the task assigned to the machine. No one is looking or applying this kind of solution. Also, for this reason, you know, the defense sector is looking to us, you know, to apply the same technology and visual navigation in their sector to do. But this is another uh, topic and I will not touch it in the, this event. Thanks Al, for the question. And What's I have, the... uh... Go ahead, Alex. Can I ask one more question? Um, I was just wondering, um, Enrico, on uh, 
on on cost on sales customer education uh do you think it's a big barrier is it uh, a big barrier to convince farmers that this technology is a game changer for them uh how do you do how do you ensure that you know if you go via retailers or resellers that you that you can actually get your product out there in the market okay one of the reasons why we are going indirectly to dealer you know and we are trying to do you know a model that will not uh, you know touch their you know we will not enter in their model of sales is because dealer know already which are his customer that is you know is looking for innovation so for the you know already which are the early adopter so they will gonna drive also and support us in the in the selling so we will do a train the trainer so we will gonna train the dealer to educate also the customer to go in this direction because they will gonna be a thing from this perspective the one that can drive better the sales of our company so i can say to you that we had for example uh with a real case there was a dealer in calabria that contacted us because you know that he knew it already that a customer was looking for a solution like the one that we are proposing so this was the reason why we say okay we need to push on the dealer side and obviously we need to find the right dealer for the one that they are thinking forward i hope Thank i reply you. to your question thanks and that was actually my question as well i have one more before we move on to our next startup of the night and enrico that's Why are you doing this? Sorry? Why are you doing this? Why are you, we are doing this? No, why are you doing this? Because uh, I'm coming from Calabria, that is the, the, uh, the, the, our startup, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I'm coming from Calabria, that is, uh, I think, uh, the least region from Italy and one of the, you know, far behind region of entire Europe. And our main sector is agriculture and we want to push forward, you know, and support our region and our territory to move ahead and to move uh, into a better, you know, sustainability and purchase power also in the region itself. So it's a way also to support my, my region in Europe. Okay, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. That's, um, thanks for sharing the entire presentation, actually. That was a great job. Uh, with the pitch, so I need to we need to move things on to our to our next presenter of the night, and we might as well keep things on the uh, on the ag and uh, farming side of things and transfer it over to Yehuda. Yehuda is coming from Israel, and he is changing the way that we have food or the way we grow food, at least. Yehuda, you are up. Do you want to tell them a little bit more about climate crop? Yes, uh, first, uh, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to present the uh, climate crop. And uh, uh, first, let's start with what uh, we are doing. Uh, we basically discovered the protein that improved photosynthesis by enabling the plant to store more starch in the leaves. The way that plants are working, they are doing photosynthesis and building sugars that support the plant metabolism. Now, the plant cannot do all the time photosynthesis. Uh, for example, at night or during stress uh, conditions, the plants doesn't do photosynthesis. So what they are doing, some of the sugars that they create, they store them in the leaves as starch. So if we can imagine the photosynthesis is like the solar panels that they were all using for electricity, 
and the starch in the leaves is basically the battery, the lithium ion battery where you store energy that you can use whenever you are not doing photosynthesis or you don't have light. Uh, we basically identified in the plant the protein that is responsible to give a command in the plant saying, stop making starch. And by deregulating this area in the gene, we were able to increase the amount of starch that the plant is stored in the leaves. So if you can imagine what it does to the plant, you have a little bit more energy in the leaves every day. Then during the night, the plant can use this energy for its growth. So we took a picture of uh, plants, uh, the wild type and the modified plant. And you can see every day that our plant is growing a little bit more. And at the end, it, uh, after uh, the full season, it brings some really amazing results. The same gene exists in all vascular plants. So it's everything that is used for food, feed, fiber, or fuel. Basically, we can upgrade it. We are talking about corn, soybean, potatoes, trees. If we grow it and we use it, we have the potential to upgrade it. We already tested it on three different crops. We tested it on potato and we saw 90% increase in greenhouse tests and 40% increase in two field trials. And then we noticed something very interesting in one of the field trials, there was a heat wave and our potatoes had better survival rate, about 27% more survival. And when we analyzed why our potatoes survived better than the wild type, we realized that also during stress conditions, the plant stopped making photosynthesis. And then if I have more starch, I have a bigger battery, the plant can use this in order to survive during a heat wave. And this is exactly what we need for the next coming decade when we have heat waves like the one that you have now in Europe, that plant can be more resilient. How they can be more resilient if they have more energy to mitigate this stress condition. Uh, we tested the, um, the, our technology on canola. We saw 41% increase in yield in greenhouse. And we tested it on sorghum. Sorghum is a C4 plant. So the photosynthesis system there is optimized. We still saw 24% increase. And in terms of effect, a 10% increase in any crop, a 10% increase in yield is a significant impact. And we saw very uh, nice growth in all the plants we tested. Same thing we can do for trees. If it's eucalyptus, uh, oil palm, apples, all our potential upgrades. Uh, we already identified the gene in all those trees. Um, everything that is used for vertical farming, tomatoes, strawberries, lattice, we have the uh, gene there that then potentially we can upgrade them. 40 second warning. Okay. Uh, in terms of genome uh, editing, uh, we use uh, gene edit in order to perform our uh, uh, change modification. This is, I don't have a lot of time. We have a patent that is already approved. Uh, this is the three things we claim more in terms of uh, 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 biomass, uh, faster growth, 
and stronger uh, survival. And uh, this is an example of our business model. If you increase yield by 40%, potentially you can increase the price of the seeds by a factor of four and still be break even. So we will share the uh, uh, increase in growth and charge a premium for the seeds. Time and is up. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you for presenting. That's uh, it's incredible what you guys have been doing. Uh, I'm sure the other other investors will have similar uh, similar excitement about it as well. I'm gonna hand it over first to Fabian and Alex. Do you guys have questions for Yehuda? Super interesting, Yehuda. Uh, very very interesting. What well, one uh, initial question that I always ask when when it's something related to GMO is like how you've been assessing the impact risks of of altering with our natural systems. So first, we are going to do everything we can not to be a GMO, okay? So since we are silencing an area, we don't, we don't introduce any foreign DNA to the plant. In several countries, we are not considered as GMO. In the US, in Canada, in South America, in many countries, in uh, India and in China, we are not considered GMO. We are all from Europe. In Europe, it's still GMO, okay? Even gene editing with CRISPR, it's still considered GMO intentions to... Uh, um, since we are under something, we are now investigating a method by breathing to make our modification and it will be a non-GMO also in Europe. So today we are GMO, but we are trying in Europe, but we are trying to find technique that will enable us to make the modification that we, we need without being considered as GMO. Okay. And, and the good thing, we don't introduce any foreign DNA to the plant. And what we are doing potentially can be can happen naturally without our interference. So the risk is extremely low. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. I have a bit of an unfair advantage here because Yehuda, we know each other already and I think it's absolutely great what you guys are doing. Um, it's, uh, it's a game changer potentially. Uh, but still, uh, an interesting question for me, and I think since last time we spoke, is around the business model. Um, so I guess it's still very early in, um, you know, how you do the pricing, how do you go to market, how do you scale it up? Um, maybe you can share a couple of thoughts on this. Yes, sure. Uh, so so um, that, that last time we, when we spoke, uh, the business model was not uh, so uh, clear, clear to us. Uh, and uh, what, what we are doing right now, we are uh, having a few potential customers uh, that own seeds or own treats that they want to upgrade. And the way that we are working with them is that we take their seeds, we modify them, they pay us for the modification, and then we do revenue share uh, with uh, the end product. So that's one line of business. And uh, we are now, uh, we will sign the first project soon, and we have some 
several additional uh, leads. And for specific crops, we want to license the treats from breeders or from uh, uh, entities that own the germplasm. We will do the upgrade and we will basically license it when do revenue share with uh, other uh, companies. And what is um what kind of share do you get there or expect? Did you uh, do you already have first negotiations there? Yeah, so you know it depends. On the first negotiation, I was flexible because I wanted the customer. <laughs> I wanted to say I am the first customer, so I was flexible. Mm. Uh, once we will have nice result in the field and uh, potentially we can increase yield by 20, 30% that uh, can basically triple or, uh, the, the net profit, uh, we will be more aggressive in terms of uh, what we are asking. Uh, so for now, it's uh, about uh, 5% of the net sales. Uh, but uh, once we will get more traction and we will uh, show results, uh, we will probably be a little bit more aggressive in terms of... Uh, what we are asking. And, and also something uh, very important uh, that I want to mention here is that uh, my personal major goal is to make an impact on climate as much as possible. So it's not just about how much percentage I get, I want to make sure that we maximize the yield so we can reduce the carbon footprint of each of the crops that we are improving. So that's also something that we take into account when we choose uh, for, for a project. One question that I had, Yehuda, so right now what you've done is figured out how to have a higher starch yield, which is great for sustainability and is great for higher calorie content and the opposite of what most people want in the developed world when it comes to dieting and losing weight. Could you potentially go the opposite direction with the genes you're editing and reduce the starch content of these same items so that you can have your low carb, low starch potato chips? Okay, so, so this is something very important. We do not change the nutrient value of the product. We increase the starch that you store in the leaf, not in the product. Okay, uh -huh. so or the potato will still say, say, stay the same potato, but it will grow faster because your system, your, your solar panel is improved. The electricity to the net will stay the same. So the product- Understood. Understood, understood. I had one question because I often, uh, when you hear these kind of, it sounds like a no-brainer solution. Like, a, so, so I always ask myself, like, what is it that I'm missing? What, what is it that, what is it that I'm missing? What, what, what are the greatest challenges that you have to take this to market? Uh, so, so there, there, there is no lack of challenges. Uh, first, the, we were the first to discover it, and uh, nobody knew about this protein before. So. There was a challenge to discover that it, it, it happens. And now you have regulation licensing that you need to like. This is also a very use it. People that are used uh, to see uh, a lot of uh, things that improve photosynthesis and fail. Um, so I think that introducing a new product to market, it's always a challenge. And in Actec, they want to see a lot of field data and we still don't have enough field data. So once I will show more field data, I think that uh, it will be much easier for me because 
who will refuse for 30% increase in yield? There is no reason not to do it. Uh, so once we get more traction, we get more data, field tests, I, I think the road is really going to be really open for us. And uh, taking into account that in certain areas, gene editing is GMO and it's complicated. So not everywhere is open uh, for us, but I hope in the future we will get uh, more uh, uh, countries or more methods for us that to be a non-GMO. Alex, Fabian, any other questions for Yehuda and Climate Crop? Fabi, do you want to have the stage? Because I already uh, had three calls or so with Yehuda. I'm, <laughs> I'm very well, well aware of what you guys are doing. No, I, I think I think you've answered many of my questions so far. Maybe maybe final one is on like, are there any crops that you see? You you mentioned potatoes. Is that like your go-to-market crop, or which one do you focus on first? So potato is our experimental crop to do a proof of concept, uh, and we want to uh, focus uh, on uh, uh, biofuel crops, uh, crops like uh, camelina, sugar cans, oil palm. Uh, things that we can uh, uh, increase the yield of uh, biofuel uh, crops or cover crops. Uh, so we are searching for uh, collaborators and partners in this uh, area. Cool. And I know right now farmers are getting murdered because of uh, petrol and IE fertilizer prices, at least in the US with everything skyrocketing thanks to Russia and Ukraine. Um, how does that factor into your sales and go-to-market strategy where you're you're dealing with farmers that don't really have, I mean, some of them have no margins, but you're going to be helping them with increasing their yield. Does that, how, do, how does that play into what's happening? So uh, we're a little bit early to get to the farmer, but once we get to the farmer, it's exactly what he needs because he doesn't need to increase the amount of resources. So we get, he use the same amount of, resources and he get more yield, which is exactly what he needs for the bottom line. So potentially farmers would uh, uh, like, would love to use what uh, we are doing because they use the same amount of resources and get 20, 30% more yield, which is exactly what they need for the bottom line. And we also notice early flowering and we may be able to shorten the season of every crop. And that's extremely important to farmers because then they can harvest on a longer period or to have more time between rotations, between uh, uh, crop uh, replacements. So we saw it in several of our uh, trials and this is something we are monitoring closely because if we do prove that we can shorten the season, this is another huge benefit for the farmers. Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's, super, it's super interesting overall. And you guys are based in Israel and raising a seed round now. Did you mention how much you're raising? Yes, uh, we, we are based in Israel. We raised 1.5 million so far, and we're looking for another half a million in the next four to six months. Perfect. Then thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing everything, Yehuda. Now we're going to take a quick time out to tell you guys a little, little bit more about the startup tank and then let uh, our next startup of the night get ready to take over things. 
we've, uh, I mean, we've been doing farming for, for so long now, we might as well just hand things directly over to our next farming-esque company of the night, um, BuzzUp. We'll tell you, have Yulia tell you a little bit more about BuzzUp in a sec. But first, this is the Startup Tank. So the, if this is your first time here and you want to learn more, the startuptank.com. If you haven't subscribed already on YouTube, you need to do that now. The startuptank.com slash YouTube should auto-describe, subscribe you, or you can do it right here. Or you can find us, we're on all your major podcasting platforms as well. And the Startup Tank is brought to you by Forward VC and our early stage climate syndicate focused on companies that move the world forward. If you're a company looking for funding or an accredited investor looking to invest in the world's most important and uh, promising companies, then go to forward.vc, the number forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. And here's one that's doing just that. And there's a, they've got a bit of buzz happening. So we will hand things over to Yulia with BuzzUp. Do you want to tell us what you guys are doing, Yulia? Uh, yeah, one second. Let me just share my screen. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, and thanks for coming. You are on the clock. Wait. One second. Okay. Can you see my screen? Yep. Let's yep. get you're all up. Uh, so hi everybody. My name is Julia and I'm from Buzz Up. And we make the world of pollinators transparent, understandable, and actionable. Wait, I can't switch the screen. Okay, here. Uh, so basically we translate the language of pollinators. And the re the reason behind this is thing is 80% of our food is pollinated by bees. So from everyday things like coffee, strawberries that you eat for breakfast and milk even, um, there's always something that is pollinated by the bees. But the problem is that we do not understand them as much as we need to understand them. So, and this affects a lot of stakeholders. So farmers, for example, they cannot produce enough yields because they do not have all, this, all of this information that regards to pollinators. So since they can't monitor how the pollinators are pollinating their crops, they cannot optimize them. So in turn, they lose out on around 20 to 50% of the yields, depending on crops, just because they don't have this information. So imagine all of that, all of that just going to waste um, because uh, they don't have enough information. So for beekeepers, they, lose out on a lot of time and therefore profits because they have to take care of like 2000 hives uh, and it's really like labor intensive. So we, um, so this is a problem for them and they lose out on uh, bees as well. So they're the ones who are taking care of those bees and because they cannot actually have the time to do it all at once, the bees die. Um, and also researchers, they can develop proper chemical products like fertilizers and pesticides that actually respect the bees. So what do we do as BuzzUp? Well, our solution is turning buzz into data. So basically we have these small IoT devices, as you can see on the left, uh, that listen to and translate the sound of bees. So we combine a lot of data all together. So temperature, humidity, GPS, and the sound, we send it to our AI, which uh, analyzes it and provides information such as health and performance data of those bees. So not just honeybees, by the way, like also bumblebees and mason bees, uh, depending on what type of crop they're pollinating. And so when we have all of this performance data, we sell it to different customers. So as you can see to the farmers, we help them increase their, their crop yields, depending again, depending on the crop, to by 20 to 50%. 
uh, the beekeepers. We help them increase their profits in honey production and also to not let the bees die. And researchers, we help them develop new products. Uh, what is going on in the market? So currently we have around three different competitors, uh, Bee Hero, Nectar, and Polenity. Um, they do not, um, as you can see on the graph, some of them do not monitor different types of bees. So mostly they focus on honeybees and they do not have a lot of parameters. So they do not focus on uh, temperature, humidity, like some of them just focus on the sound. And so they don't, do not go as in depth as we do. Um, the market, uh, it is a total of 13.8 billion. So that is including indoor and outdoor farms. Uh, the pollination market, and we are hoping to conquer 9.5 billion of it. So, and this is in dollars. Uh, right now, we already have 500 customers. So, we are starting in uh, Europe, and we have five, 500 customers that are beekeepers. Um, active devices, 1,500. And we are cash positive since 2019. So, in 2021, we had a turnover of $350,000. Uh, our retention rate of the customers is 90%, and we have previously already raised 270K. Um, our team consists of beekeepers. Uh, this is actually how it started. The beekeeper, he combined his forces with a software engineer, and they came up with the solution. Uh, marketers, business development, like me, and uh, strategists. We also have mentors that have successful companies. Um, and we're working together with a lot of universities to develop our devices and our algorithms. And also we are co-funded by the European Union. So we had a little grant from them as well. And we're working on a project, uh, Prima. It, it is around the Mediterranean area to help understand what kind of impact uh, does climate change have on our pollinators. Uh, currently, we're actually raising uh, $3.2 million to help us scale. So. Uh, for production, uh, research and development, and marketing. So we're trying to also expand into the US market and uh, South America and Asia. Um, yeah, so measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not so by Galileo Galilei. So this is what we're trying to do. Thank you. Perfect timing with four seconds left. Ooh. Julia, great job on the pitch. Thank you so much for sharing buzz up with us let's see what the let's see what the buzz is with the other investors alex fabian i'll bring you guys back on board and let's get some feedback for julia and some questions loving how you uh, use every pun in, in 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 this word in the name of the company that's great that you managed to uh well it's fascinating that we can kind of talk to bees so um i'm fascinated um i was uh I was just wondering, uh, I totally see um, the value proposition to um, beekeepers. I was yep. just wondering uh, the underlying, like the 15 to 20% uh, yield increase for farmers sounds a bit steep um, without knowing anything about it, right? So I'm not an expert in that field. So I was just wondering um, what's your traction on the farmer end? Where does this number come from? I guess it's um, probably talks to a specific type of farmer what type of farmers are we talking about it's probably not applicable to the whole industry as such so um maybe you can help me to understand how you tackle that market um yeah. in the future um yeah okay so thing is the 15 to 20 percent so it actually depends on the crop we're talking about so for almonds for example they're very reliant on pollination so let's say um the farmer he has those two weeks of pollination that he has to rent those bees 
and help them pollinate their crops. So uh, it is very important for the farmer to actually know if those bees that he's renting are doing a proper job. So if, uh, for example, the beekeeper says, oh yeah, okay, those bees are, are doing their job. The farmer kind of says, okay, maybe, I don't know. So in turn, he can lose out on those yields just because the bees are underperforming or are sick. So this is where we come in and we provide this data uh, on the pollination performance of those bees that the farmer is renting. And therefore he can take action like really fast if he can see on the phone. Oh, actually we had an app. So he can see everything through, through the app. And if the bees are underperforming, he can go and tell the beekeeper to, to do something to actually fix the problem. And therefore the farmer will not lose out on those yields. And, and actually right now we are testing with a lot of customers um, in Europe mostly uh, for the farmer side. Um, yeah. Uh, and this number is actually, it, we didn't come up with it. It's uh, from a lot of research papers done by people that are, let's say, much more smarter than us in the research area. So, yeah. I didn't know that you can rent bees, to be honest. Also, first time I heard that. Um, so you could basically <laughs> even do a performance-based pricing with your technology of the beekeepers when you rent Yeah, also, also, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if the bees are underperforming, the farmer can pay less. I mean, this is not what we actually want to achieve because uh, uh, the end goal is to make the farmer increase his yields or perform, make the bees perform better. But this is also something, a road that can be taken. Yeah. yeah. And Fabian, maybe one more question, then I shut up. Um, uh, what is the business model that you use for those different um, market segments? Uh, so we sell hardware, so the devices themselves to beekeepers, um, and they go and pollinate the other people's crops. And from there on, we sell the data directly to the farmer. Uh, but we are also testing another model right now uh, to sell those de devices directly to the farmers, which can, when they rent those bees, they can be like, okay, I will rent your bees, but you have to put in this device so I can see what's going on. So currently we're, we're still in the middle of testing those two business models to understand which one is better, but in the end it could be, we can take both. So it doesn't hurt to take uh, both ways. Thanks. Really fascinating. Uh, the whole bee world is super fascinating. And, and in terms of the market, if we go back to that one, sorry if I missed it, but what, what are the, because the market sounded very big when you're just like looking at beekeeping. Could you just maybe take us one level deeper in, in the market sizing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the market is not just beekeeping. Uh, it is uh, the whole pollination market. So it's what, um, how, how the bees contribute to this whole um, crop yield situation. So how much they increase, how much the farmers actually earn on this and how much the farmers pay for this for the service. Mm. So this, this is what I say when, when it comes to the market. Okay. So not just the inside of it. Yeah. And, and how much can you charge per, per customer? Uh, well, we're thinking of 20% of uh, whatever the beekeeper is charging. No, whatever the... Yeah, whatever the beekeeper is charging the farmer. So it, it also depends on how much data they want. So per acre, let's say we will, uh, we're still trying to figure out with the test farms that we're currently running this pricing mm. model, but this is what we have in mind currently. Okay, cool. And in terms of the, of the actions you take, sorry for being a bee uh, noob here, but uh, like what, what do you actually do with the data? What, what, are, what is the data that you produce? And can you like give some examples of the actual use case or like the actions that, the, that then the beekeeper takes? Yeah, uh, so the beekeeper, he can go in and treat the bees or replace the hive that is uh, currently pollinating those crops. So usually the beekeeper he has, he manages 
on average, let's say 1,000 1, beehives. So, and they're usually doing different things for different farmers or just they're uh, collecting honey in the wild. Um, yeah, so in this case, when it comes to honeybees, um, they can just either replace the hive or try to fix the problem that is at hand. So if it's swarming, for example, they're trying to like separate, uh, the beekeeper takes care of it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very technical, so I will not yeah. dive too deep in there yet. So. so, Julia, one of the questions I had for you, I asked you, I think over email, but I think it's worth bringing up here as well is, is the business model even selling to beekeepers and farmers or is it selling the data to the people that are then speculating on the crop production side of things? So large hedge funds that are dealing in commodities. Wait, sorry, can you repeat the question? So I imagine there's a lot of money on the commodities market of what's the price of wheat going to be? What's the price of barley going to be? Well, if you have all all of this information on where the best pollination is happening and where it's not happening, Mm -hmm. I think there's probably a lot of value there for either hedge funds, traders, or uh, people on the insurance side of things. Yeah, yeah, this could could be an interesting approach. Uh, We have not dove that deep into it yet, but uh, it's definitely something to, to look at as well. And in terms of the future of the business and the business development, how do you grow and scale? How do you take this from where you are today to something that's a hundred times as big, a thousand times as big? What do you need to accomplish? How do you get there? Uh, So the thing is mostly if you already know farmer associations or beekeeping associations and uh, farmer consultants, uh, if you're speaking to them, uh, it's much easier to sell that way. So they're the ones who are like the trendsetters, let's say, of, uh, of the industry. And we already have a, a couple of, uh, okay, not a couple, more than a couple of uh, contacts like that. So uh, yeah, this is uh, the way to go from there. So target the trendsetters and uh, go from there. Understood. Alex or Fabi, and any other questions for Julia? Thanks, I have uh, no more questions. It looks like that is all for Julia. Then Julia, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for presenting. It's a super it's a super cool company. Um, speaking of super cool companies, we got to thank Leva, our sponsor, who is helping us make all of this happen. If you're setting up an SPV, if you're a fund manager, if you run syndicates like we do, then Leva is a great way to run those syndicates and set up SPVs. It's the fastest, simplest way to do it. With a digital SPV, you can set up in five minutes. Anyone can do it. You can have five investors or five million. It doesn't really matter. Same thing with how much capital you deploy. Fast, simple, easy, gets rid of the lawyers, gets rid of the paperwork and lets you get on with investing or raising your round if you're a founder. For more information, forward.vc slash Leva. Go there, tell them that Matt sent you and you should get a pretty steep discount on your first or second deal. So again, forward.vc slash Leva. And now we want to move on to our next startup of the night. Things are going great. We're on track for once. And I want to thank everybody who's tuned in for this on YouTube, everyone who's tuned in on LinkedIn and everyone who's dealt with all of the issues of all of the links not working because the streaming software is a little bit different today, but at least we're getting things out there. We're getting great companies like this in front of the audience, in front of everyone who's interested in either investing in great companies, joining great companies, or just being involved in the mission. And we're all on a, we're all on the same planet. We're all on the same team. And speaking of, that's why I, I actually recently published Forward VC's um, 
climate investor database. So for all the startups here, for everybody who's listening, or if you just want to connect with other investors, if you go to forward.vc slash VC database, you can download our entire database. It's filterable by stage, sector, geography, and check size. So you can find your ideal investor or your ideal co-investor. But now it's time for us to move back to the startup tank, get back into things. I want to hand things over now to Luca. Luca is coming to us from uh, Phoenix Carbon. Phoenix Carbon is a great... Uh, oh, wow. No, it's from Carbon 13. No, and Phoenix Carbon. Okay, Carbon is in the name, in fact. And they're doing some pretty cool things when it comes to recycling and material technology. Luca, you want to take over and share? Of course. Thank you much, Matt. Much appreciated. So I'm presenting here today with my co-founder, uh, Rick Stewart. And we'll be presenting both. So Matt, if you could give him uh, access per accent. Right, Rick, floor is yours. Okay, I, I assume everyone can hear me. Um, hi, everybody. Um, we're Phoenix Carbon. Um, we are a, a disruptive uh, composite recycler, and we enable a uh, viable circular economy for these materials. And in particular, we focus on, on carbon fibers. So we'll discuss that later on. Um, I'm a CEO. I'm a, a serial entrepreneur with multiple exits across uh, aerospace, software, e-commerce, to name a few. And uh, also with me today, Luca, uh, who's our genius uh, CTO. Um, he's um, a very experienced engineer, even though his uh, youthful looks might belie that. Um, across aerospace uh, and automotive as well. So um, composites are um, interesting. They're around us uh, a lot. Um, they are particularly suited to mobility, transport, for obvious reasons. They're very light. They're very strong. Um, but they have uh, a kind of dirty secret. Um, they are not sustainable uh, and they are very, very expensive. So a huge amount of carbon fiber waste goes into uh, landfill every year, takes with it a lot of embodied CO2 uh, and also takes with it a lot of uh, sunk cash. Um, we want to reverse that. The problem at the moment is that the current recyclers degrade the composite materials to such an extent that their uses are constrained. That means that there's very little value for them. Uh, and there's even less value for the end user. So why do our customers care? Um, if you look at automotive, 95% of the car in the EU needs to be sustainable, uh, but at the same time, they need to lightweight cars, especially with EVs. So that's a bit of a mismatch. If you look at the energy sectors, uh, glass fiber, composite turbine blades are all at end of life now. They can't go in the landfill. France and Germany have banned that. The rest of the EU will follow. Um, so there needs to be a solution to break those down. Uh, if you look at marine clients, um, there's a lot of carbon fiber high-end yachts made. They all use very, very high specification materials, but they need that sustainable green credentials that go with it. And if you look at across most sectors, there's a growing pressure, there's a growing legislation, there's a fear even that uh, sustainability is going to hit their bottom line. Luca. So how do we solve this problem? We have developed our own lean, low-cost recycling process that is able to remove the thermoset polymer out of the composite without damaging the fiber itself. So what that means is we are able to remove the coffee stain out of your silk jacket without damaging the jacket. 
without one patent, there are three more in, in the pipeline to protect our technology. And being a, a, a lean process, we save 87% of CO2 compared to virgin carbon fiber. Critical to our process is that we don't affect the material properties, which has never been achieved in the industry before. So we deliver a composite circular economy to the industry. And we do all of that while being 50% cheaper compared to virgin carbon fiber. The CO2 savings are very, very significant because carbon fiber is a very energy intense process. So by 2032, we will save 12.7 million tons of CO2, which will then raise to 90 million in 2050. We have lengthy discussions with our customers and we have identified a raw material which we'll provide to them, which no one in the industry has provided and which is which will be the same quality as Virgin. In this instance, we're not going to be able to share what it is, but please contact us for more information. Regarding securing feedstock, we've talked extensively to suppliers in the European Union and we, we've secured enough feedstock for our growth phases. And speaking with our customers, we have developed a future IP pipeline that will cover all of, the, all, 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 all of our customers' needs uh, for, for the future. Let's talk about market size, Rick. Yeah, so this market size is- 30 second warning, just so you know. By any standards, thank you. Uh, 88 billion, we're focusing on carbon fiber. And in the EU market, that comes down to around about 1.6 billion. Still considerable when you consider our gross margins are 70%. So that's the kind of market traction we've got at the moment. Automotive, large companies, small, uh, aerospace, uh, and marine. Those, those are our beachheads. Next slide, please. Um, some quotes, basically. Hey, they need it now. They need a solution. They need a green solution for carbon fiber. And time is up. You want to share just quickly what you're raising and what you're asking us? Yeah, sure. We need to raise around about two million to build a pilot plant, and then we're good. Thank you very much. Well, there we go. Fast and efficient with rounding it out. Thank you, Rick and Luca, for sharing everything. Let's bring Alex and Fabian back, and we can have a little roundabout on Phoenix Carbon. Do you guys have any questions to kick things off, Alex or Fabian? Sure, um, I can go first. Um, really interesting technology. In fact, I've um, looked a little bit into the carbon fiber market myself because I do know how carbon intensive it is and uh, how much we need it in the future, especially with wind power going online and um, lighter and lighter automotives that we need to build. Um, maybe on the technology side, what do you, how do you, what is, what does the technology actually do? Do you kind of reliquify the raisins that are built on the carbon fiber? And then you have the end product is the carbon fiber, and then you can use it again to make new carbon fiber materials. Or how, how can I imagine this? That, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. So we are able to get the woven out uh, of a composite without damaging the twill the woven. And then you sell, um, and then the business model is basically you sell the woven, the woven carbon fiber as a recycled carbon fiber, um, probably even at a premium, I assume, right? As a, as a commodity. Yeah. As a commodity, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we yes, you're absolutely right. There is there, there is a potential premium because it's because it's green. It's been recycled and and can continue to be recycled. Um, but there are there are various different business models depending on who we deal with, uh, what what we take from them, and what they take from us. So we're not necessarily an alternative landfill. Put it that way. Yeah. And can you work with any kind of raisin um, that's currently in the market? Is there any actually actually a difference? Look. So we we've tested uh, many 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 resins, including bio resins, and our, our process works with all of them. Uh, yeah. Cool. And um, maybe last question on technology and um, how do you do quality assurance? Because I know how fragile this uh, material is being a mountain biker myself. <laughs> true, true. Okay, so during the manufacturing process, um, before we ship it to our, to our customers, we are able to test um, fiber before it, it goes out. So especially for some markets where they need um, data for, the, for each batch, that, that's going to be incredibly valuable. So... That, that's one way. And the second way is we control the feedstock that, that's coming in. And then by controlling the feedstock, then different kind of stick of feedstock will have then different um, material specification, which which will be which will answer different uh, customer requirements. So, so the way that we do it is by controlling the feedstock and by having a check at the end of the manufacturing. Okay. Maybe one last question. Sorry, Fabian. For stealing no worries. Go ahead. <laughs> um, how do you deal uh, uh, when it's when there's like colored materials? When you have, um, for example, rotor plates um, of wind turbines, which I assume is a good feedstock for you because it's just so big, but usually is white colored. You have to get rid of that stuff first, right, before you can probably start your process. And how is that affecting your economics? Correct. So we've identified a specific feedstock that is widely available out there um, that does not have any of those problems. Um, but I don't want to share any of these details in this public forum. So I'll be more than happy to answer deeply this question in a private uh, conversation. Alrighty. Thank you, Luca. No worries. Thank you. Cool. And in terms of, uh, I know, especially from the automotive and the aerospace industry, uh, it's very regulated when it comes to the materials they use. True. Like how long are the, both how do you work with that? And then how does that affect your sales cycles and, and go to market before you can scale this up? Rick, do you want to touch on this? Sure. Um, it's interesting that you asked this. We were, we were in Hamburg um, all last week, at a, a very well-known large uh, aerospace ship. Um, where it's pretty clear that, that aviation's got to move to a much higher uh, penetration level of, of composites. And yes, there are, there are certification processes that um, do, do give a, a lead time, but they're a lot shorter than they used to be um, and, and essentially are, are impact testing and flame testing. Um, carbon fiber's already been through that process. This is not a, a new material. Um, and as long as the, the specification of each particular batch or each particular run and whatever it's designed into still conforms to the original specifications, then there is no barrier to entry as such. It's not considered to be a new material. Okay. Um, 
so so flame test we know we know that that carbon fiber does pass flame test because you just use uh, phenolic uh, resins so they're fire retardant um, and we can deal with that anyway in a, in a, in a circular uh, economy uh, recycling anyway cool no it's uh, it's very favorable that you are that you're classified as a carbon fiber straight from the get-go um, in sure. terms of uh, the, the capital need to scale up, you're raising now two million to build your pilot plant. How, how much approximately that yeah. produce? Um, that gives us a 24 month runway and potentially gets us to around about a throughput of 50 tons, um, which is tiny, really, compared to what we need to get to. Um, mm. But but we we will scale with demand and we'll do so under a controlled uh, and controlled way. We're not going to sort of build it big and, and then try and fill it. So we're, we're very modular on, on a 25 ton by 25 ton basis. Um, we can break even between the 25 and 50 tons. Mm -hmm. Cool. And in terms of, you said that you are working with a specific supply that you won't, don't want to disc disclose today, but do you see any threat of others trying to work with, the, with a similar supply and that you will then get supply constrained and, and like a more competitive position? I, I think with any with any circular economies where you start to produce value in something that ordinarily wasn't seen as valuable, it was just a, a recycling waste byproduct. You, you are going to see some macroeconomics kick in. So, so once someone realizes that they can, they can make money from something that, that ordinarily they're just happy to give away and save the landfill fee, we're going to see some, some, some movement on that. But I, I don't see that ever becoming a, an issue when when our margins are so are so wide, and and to some extent when when we look at the the competitor as it stands right now, um, I'd be quite happy for us to pay for some feedstock because uh, if someone's selling their their um, their product at five pounds a kilo and we can sell it at forty to fifty pounds a kilo, then clearly um, we kind of price people out because we mm. can afford it. Why become a, a producer as opposed to licensing the technology? Couldn't you scale you something like this much, much larger and faster? <laughs> yeah. I, the thing about white labeling is, is one, we kind of abdicate our responsibility a little bit, really. Um, and two, um, you're, you're, you're solving a, a, a problem with a solution, but, but in some ways the solution becomes a problem because you, you're giving it back to the person who had the problem in the first place. And you're saying, okay, here's how you do it, but you go and do it. And we, we thought about that and we decided, no, we don't it. We don't it, the whole thing. We, I, would, we would be the, 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 the solution provider. In, in fact, I've actually chatted with somebody that said would would it be okay for us to put you know a container sized recycling thing at your site and they were like absolutely not but that's because they're not making money and you guys would be doing it but for them to be doing i mean even, if you guys start even with some revenue sharing if you guys start a, a fishing company you're not going to catch more fish than if you teach people to start fishing companies you're gonna yeah but fishing is very easy Okay, that may be. And and uh, on the on the scale up again and the capital need, where what what would it? How much capital do you need to be a hundred million revenue company? Well, out of the blocks. So so two million um, gets us, as I said, to 50, uh, 50 tons per year. We wanted to get to around about 500 tons for the UK unit alone. 
Mm. Uh, and at 500 tons, we're around about 20 million AIR. Uh, but the EBIT is very high, around about mm. over 50%. Cool. So, and if you want to get to 200, do the maths. Yeah. 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 Maybe last question on, on supply constraint. Do you like, given that you work with one specific type of carbon, do you have any estimates on like uh, how much is out there and, and how big you can you become with that? Would do and it's a it's huge amount, it, huge an amount. embarrassingly huge large amount, actually. Huge amount. That, that actually, goes so, so, you know, Rick was talking about 5,500 tons, um, there's 62,000 tons of carbon fiber uh, waste in the world that has carbon fiber not composite. About a third of that is in Europe, so 20,000 tons. So that's 20,000 tons in Europe and we want to, to, to cycle 500. So yeah. Well, cool. It sounds like a very, it sounds like a very meaningful uh, circular economy company. Thank you. Carbon fiber is only becoming more and more important and we're only running more and more out of raw materials. So it's probably not a bad idea to make some money recycling them. Any other questions, Alex or Fabian? Awesome, then Maybe thanks, Luca. Know, one comment from my end, there's a very interesting company or two interesting companies that might be very interesting for you. B Corp, uh, B Corp in Switzerland yeah. and um, Compare, which do um, self-repairing raisins for carbon fibers. Um, very interesting as well. Um, if you want, you can, can make a make an introduction. Maybe you can leverage experience, expertise and network in that, that area. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Awesome, Alex. Help is always good when you're trying to change the world and fight the system. These guys are these guys are changing the world and fighting the system as well. And they're uh, turning waste into into something more. That'll be our transition over to Laroma and Marina. Marina, do you want to come in and take the stage? Yes, thank you, Matt. I hope you can hear me. Oh, good. And yeah. your five minutes starts now. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Marina. I'm coming from Germany and I'm the CEO and founder of Liroma. It's a B2B platform for food ingredients. I have been working in the food processing industry for the last um, 10 years and um, I would like to tell you um, a story, a case uh, from my client. It was an ice cream manufacturer and um, he had a production order to produce ice cream with the flavor of pistachios and with uh, two millimeter cutted pistachios, he was looking for a supplier. He found on the market uh, four millimeter cutted pistachios or eight millimeter, but not the two millimeter ones. And after two months of sourcing, um, he lost his production order. And um, um, while not only um, using the pistachios, um, he couldn't use other ingredients like milk powder and uh, flavor and functional ingredients to, for his um, big um, production order. And it was a total waste. Um, where um, he had uh, food ingredients waste, he had to bring it to the disposal. And um, it is uh, a number of one 
uh, manufacturer waste uh, for a special period, it was seven tons. But the problem is much bigger. So we have uh, worldwide 1.6 billion tons of food waste every year and the numbers rising. And um, therefore I had to build Liroma uh, by providing uh, my customers um, uh, with a procurement tool, with a search engine for food ingredients. And the second part of our platform is a surplus exchange for reducing food waste by giving food ingredients and primary products further, not only within the food processing industry. So we give um, um, products like uh, coffee, uh, which is not food grade anymore. We give it to the cosmetic industry. Um, so we try to do the waste upcycling. Um, our USP is a search engine um, and um, the um, marketplace for surpluses. And this is one database. And the USP is that uh, food technologies and the buyer of a food production company can filter by specialist criteria, like uh, um, if a product is thermostable, natural, or water soluble. And um, our business model is uh, that we have subscription models for our ZAS procurement tool and uh, commission of, um, yeah, like eBay, when we uh, have a successful um, uh, selling of uh, products and uh, surpluses. And of course, um, in the future, the data, because we will know first what kind of ingredients are short in supply, what kind of ingredients are being sourced and how many and what kind of ingredients in what regions are being wasted. Uh, the market for the digital procurement um, is very attractive and we are planning um, in the next three years with an um, ARR about 15 million euros for Liroma and the food waste upcycle um, it's a very interesting topic, especially when we go to the neighboring industries um, and connect with cosmetic pharmaceutical um, cleaning industry and also uh, construction business. You cannot imagine um, just a few weeks ago, we transferred soya textura to the construction business and they made out of walls, they made um, they made out of um, soya and soya products walls um, being used in the um, in, in houses and this is amazing. And the um, market of um, side streams and upcycling uh, topics um, is unpredict unpredictable for today. Um, so for today, we are very young startup based in Dusseldorf, but we have already um, almost 700 customers trusting us, buying ingredients and um, selling and buying surpluses uh, because we have a commodity shortage. And um, we have, um, yeah, um, our amount of um, saved food uh, and uh, food ingredients is about 800 tons so far since one year operating on the market. Um, we are a team of uh, tech and food technologist um, experts coming from the food industry and um, from the um, upcycling topics. And we are raising currently um, our seed round. It's our first investment. And of course, also, I would love to have connections with partners and stakeholders. And um, yeah. Maybe. Time is up. <laughs> thank you. And thank you as well, Mar uh, Marina, for sharing everything about what you guys are doing at Little Aroma. 
Let me bring back our investors, Fabian and Alex, and I will let them take the first question since they are a steamed panel, and I will add my questions afterward. Great. Perfect. Thank you so much, Marina. Super interesting. And maybe my first question is on, because given that it's, it's typically quite low value, but the high volume goods that you are handling, it seems like. How do you think about the logistics and, and like sorting? Will the marketplace be more local in different regions or do you actually see that, that people source long distances? Yeah, so thank you. For, it's a good question. So uh, first of all, we are in a, since many years in a globalization when it comes to food ingredients. Uh, well, like in Germany, we buy pepper, which is being grown in India and we have um, the marketplace is being there for um, handling uh, the get together, the matchmaking and finding uh, each other, especially on the side of food producers, because their daily business is to buy ingredients and to produce food and to sell the food. And when they have leftover, like in the warehouse, like 10 tons, 50 tons or 100 tons, and they're like, okay, it's like 2% margin of our part and they throw it away. Uh, because it's not the daily business to sell ingredients. And this is a main problem we are trying to tackle. Um, with uh, um, transportation, the um, great idea is, um, especially now in the um, shortage of ingredients, through our platform, you can find ingredients um, which you don't need to import from uh, China, for example, because it's too far away. Uh, we have like uh, problems with containers. We have uh, production uh, time increased from um, four weeks up to five months right now. And it's a big problem for um, all European uh, producers. So the idea is to see locally and more in the regional part where the, there is a supplier um, or maybe a surplus, um, which I can buy quickly and don't wait for the production time and save, of course, on the trans transport and the um, yeah time. Cool. And in, on a marketplace, it's always a question on, on both uh, supply and demand. Like what has been your focus so far? Is it securing supply or, or, or accessing demand? Yeah, so we have two business models for the, for the search engine. Of course, we will earn the money uh, later on when we have more traffic. And for yeah, having this gap overall, we built a crawler where we crawl B2B um, uh, results from uh, supplier uh, websites um, to have more uh, yeah, products available. And um, we kind of focus right now um, very deeply on the surplus exchange where we go to big corporates uh, through open doors because we help them not only to be sustainable but save money and making uh, sustainability profitable. So this is where we want to concentrate with Liroma for the next two years uh, while we're having the customers helping them to sell surpluses. We um, help them also to yeah buy uh, regular products on a regular supplier relationship. Okay. Oh, uh, and then what is the most challenging? Is it to actually find the supply or to find a buyer for the supply? Um, yeah, it depends on the product. So we have, we are like now collecting all data. We are receiving about 800 monthly searches. Um, and that means that we know already what kind of products are short in supply or being needed uh, on the market. And um, the 
surplus exchange, um, there's of course, of course, the uh, challenge to, to bring the customer to that point that uh, he has been throwing away since 30 years so the, the products and to say it's yeah, only a small margin, but um, yeah, to convince him to try our uh, eBay and to, to be sustainable and not only for selling, but buying. And of course, the digitalization, because yeah, it's an undigitalized uh, area. The food industry, especially at the beginning of the value chain, is very undigitalized, and there are not a lot of market players uh, being involved for yeah, providing also digital solution. Any well, more questions? I'll hand over to Alex. I, I assume he has some very smart questions. <laughs> I'm trying now. It's uh, first of all, congrats. I mean, the, the traction that you put up so far, it's uh, very impressive. Actually, my first ever investment was also in the food, food uh, waste space. So uh, I know the immensity of the problem. Um, I was um, just wondering, um, there's the, the whole topic around waste to, to value is, um, is a very interesting one, but oftentimes constrained by supply uh, of biomass of some sort. Uh, is that, is that an, a business area which you also want to explore? Because I have a feeling <laughs> that's, a, that's a, the natural extension of what you're doing right now, kind of. Yeah, this is like the advantage of using a B2B platform for uh, all kinds of suppliers, like big players and also like small farmers, because we can pull the uh, sellers and uh, also pull the buyers. So we um, create like uh, seller uh, alliances so they can put together all the waste, for example, and give it to one processor because the processors, I'm coming from the processing industry and they need like a regular supply of a big amount. And um, yeah, this is possible. Um, by um, going to associations. And for example, when we have one farmer uh, who is producing asparagus in Germany, all of the farmers have 30% of waste and they are trying to find a solution. And we collect all the farmers, they are very well connected. Um, and we tell them we have a solution uh, for processing uh, topic um, to save your asparagus um, harvest. Um, they are on board and this is um, how we go um, yeah, category by category and industry by industry. So right now we are focusing on um, long durable products, not fresh products, but of course in the future we will have a lot of fresh products on the uh, marketplace as well. I understand. And um, can you talk a bit more about your current traction, where you stand in terms of also revenue wise, how big are you guys? Yeah, so we started last year uh, in January with our surplus exchange where we um, um, we made a, a 140k uh, turnover with a surplus trading and this year um, it's already about uh, 600k and um, the traction is we have uh, almost 700 uh, food producers, um, ingredient suppliers, traders on the platform. And um, most of them are buying and selling. And we expect uh, yeah, a revenue with uh, mainly customers. They are like active. It's only 20% uh, by now because the corporates need longer time to, to put it on board in their company. 
Um, so we are expecting with those customers um, a revenue about 1.5 million. Um, and yeah, it's a trading volume. So we have different margins. Uh, it depends on the product, depends on the commission uh, we charge. Super interesting. And are you a um, funding uh, need for this round? What is this? Uh, so we are looking for our first investment, about 1 million. And um, yeah, we are looking for uh, um, yeah, smart money uh, to connect us with uh, other sustainable companies or uh, also technology to implement to the platform. So we think in circular economy and uh, of course also in platform economy. So um, you asked me before about transportation. So we, there are big issues in terms of suppliers and verification of specifications and certificates, which we could implement into the platform. So our goal is to meet um, yeah, partnerships where we can um, build up. We, we don't want to build everything by ourselves uh, and it would not make sense. So um, it's starting with a payment provider because the margins are very low in the food industry and going to OCR solutions uh, by scanning specifications and um, audits, which we can implement to the platform. And um, yeah, cool. any more? Exciting. Thanks, Marina. And a question from my side, is there any type of B2C play in this where you can leverage or arbitrage the inventory that you don't have B2B buyers for to then have a, almost like a Groupon of asparagus's deal. So people can buy real cheap vegetables and fruits on a as needed basis, or you sell into farmer's markets or something. Yeah, this uh, approach we are not looking for because there are uh, other players to do that. And uh, we want to stay in the industry where we uh, save at the beginning of the value chain, not finished goods but uh, product which can be still processed or upcycled or even if it's downcycled but still saved from uh, being uh, burned or uh, destroyed. Um, no, we will stay in the B2B segment and our latest uh, step in the supply chain um, could be, um, which was in the corona pandemic, very much the case, uh, the gastronomy sector where we had uh, customers um, which um, yeah, bought a lot of things like in big bulks because there's also industry where you can unpack these big bulks and still produce and process it. Awesome, thanks, thanks for clarifying. And then I, I wanna make sure we've got enough time for our last startup. Do you have any last questions, Alex or Fabian? No, thank you, Marina. Awesome, then Marina, thank, thank you for sharing. And it's time for you to queue up last, but certainly not least, we've got Julie, nah, sorry, we've got Sarah with Infoios and they're uh, revolutionizing the battery supply chain. We all know we can't just throw the batteries in the garbage, especially not with the types of batteries they're making today. They're super pollutive, super important to our future. And Sarah and the team over at Infoios is trying to, and trying to do something about that. Although I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Sarah, do you wanna take it away? Awesome. You should be able to see my screen now. Is that up there? You are golden and good to go. 
Great. So yeah, hi everyone. I'm Sarah, co-founder and CEO of Infius. So very close to the pronunciation. Um, and we're we're on a mission to build a future where every battery supply chain is sustainable. As we all know, the clean energy and clean mobility revolution means battery demand is about to explode. And so we would think right now that battery makers and car makers should be pretty happy. But they've got a big problem. Their battery supply chains are global, complex, opaque, and they're simply not ready. So when a problem does arise in the supply chain, it's already too late and the consequences are often huge. You see Tesla and other tech giants being taken to court for the death of children at mines in the DRC. And then when we look further down the horizon, we see up to an 80% shortage of key battery materials by 2030, which means that supply chain executives are now putting supply chain resilience as a number one priority. And so car makers and regulators are now demanding supply chain sustainability in order to make sales. And so supply chain is getting to a point where it will make or break the success of a battery maker. Infius is a one-stop solution that helps battery supply chain players such as battery makers, car makers, and energy infrastructure companies manage, measure, and improve their supply chain sustainability. How exactly do we do this? Well, we help them by helping them across the entire sustainability journey. They can view their key sustainability impacts across their supply chain, build a tailored strategy to address these impacts, then go from strategy to implementation with the tools they need to manage their impacts and engage their suppliers on the journey with them. How are we already making this happen? Well, we validated the problem and our solution with over 100 supply chain players and are actively engaging with over 15 battery players. We've got key strategic partners and advisors on board. And at the beginning of this year, we closed our angel round backed by Carbon 13 and Fast Track Malmo Accelerator programs. We signed our customer contract a couple of months ago and they're paying 72,000 pounds per year for access to the platform with revenue that scales as their production also scales. We launched our MVP at the beginning of this year and are launching our platform this month and then about to open up for a £1 million fundraise in order to scale out the team, in order to scale out the platform across other customers in the battery supply chain space. Why exactly are we doing this? Well, myself and my co-founder, Tony, have expertise in building supply chains, building the technology for supply chains, and in the battery industry. I previously built the China and Asia expansion at Everledger, the supply chain traceability scale-up. I've been part of the World Economic Forum's Global Battery Alliance and their Greenhouse Gas Working Group. I'm fluent in Chinese and have worked in China, where the majority of the world's battery supply chain players are based. As for my co-founder, Tony, he has a background in supply chain tech and software, and he was previously co-founder and CTO at Pact Coffee, where he scaled them from zero all the way to Series A and 4 million ARR. We've also got some amazing advisors on board, including Rob, who's ex-head of supply chain at Jaguar Land Rover, and Oyvind, who's a serial entrepreneur in the B2B SaaS world. We're starting with high growth European battery players, but our ambitions are much bigger than that. And due to the overlap in supply chains and the, the materials, it means that we'll naturally be able to scale into new industries. The market that we're playing in is big and unsurprisingly is 
growing very quickly. It's already worth over 500 billion pounds and it will be worth 1.5 trillion pounds by the end of the decade. We grow as our customers grow and our revenue model is based on charging them a monthly platform subscription fee depending on their production scale. So kind of back to the beginning, for us, we see that we're still at the beginning of this journey towards clean technology. And at Infius, we believe you still have a choice about how we can do it, and we want to do it better. So we invite you to join us on this journey to build a future where every battery supply chain is sustainable. And you nailed the pitch. 23 seconds to go. It's a full shot clock in the NBA, I think. Thanks for thanks for sharing uh, what you guys are doing, Sarah. It's incredibly interesting. Let me bring back our other panelists here, Fabian, Alex, and we'll open up some questions for Sarah and Infios. Sarah, I'm glad that we that we met today because I I know your deal is in our pipeline. Oh, your response! I think you you've been sending us your pitch deck. So great that you presented today. Um, really cool what you guys are doing. Um, maybe you can help me to understand a little bit better what's on the platform um, and what the desired end product looks like and also the part on building a strategy, um, like how you do this together with, um, for example, a battery um, producer or a car manufacturer, whoever your client is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. So as I was kind of explaining, the, the platform split into four main buckets at the moment. The first one is supply chain analysis. So you as a battery maker right now, their kind of big challenges, they're high growth battery makers, they're entering into this very competitive dynamics where for you know, the last 10 years, Asian players have dominated the market. They have huge production scales, huge teams. And the high growth players are coming into this market. They're having to kind of position themselves in a different way to how current kind of incumbents are. Firstly, because they need to kind of enter and have a competitive edge. Secondly, because they don't have the economies of scale that their competitors have and therefore need to find a way to justify the price premium. And then they have some of the most progressive sustainability regulation coming into place. That means that they have to make sure that they're in a leading position in sustainability simply in order for car makers to have a conversation about will we buy these batteries or not. And so in terms of how that then relates to the product is the first thing that they need is to understand baseline, where are they right now based on the products that they are producing? What does their supply chain look like and what are the key sustainability impacts across their supply chain from renewable energy or energy and carbon emissions to climate risk, to responsible sourcing, circularity and so on. And so the, the first aspect, which is the supply chain analysis helps them to identify what are the key sustainability impacts in their supply chain, but also to identifies for them what are your key drivers across investor demands, regulation, and customer demands. That then feeds into the, the second part, the, the strategy implementation, which is, okay, if you take a, a kind of a battery maker right now, they're trying to sell to BMW. BMW has a net zero 2040 supply chain goal, say, and therefore you as a battery maker at a minimum need to have this as your supply chain, your long-term supply chain goal. And so the strategy side helps you to set those long-term goals based on the supply chain analysis. And then also go from long-term, where do you want to go to? Okay, short-term, where are you right now? Right now, you're not even measuring your company carbon emissions. 
Therefore, the first thing you need to do is that. And therefore, that's where it then feeds into the third aspect, which is the impact management, which is giving you the tools you need and integrating with the tools that you need in order to actually be able to then go about implementing the strategy. And then the final aspect is onboarding your suppliers onto the platform as well to capture the sustainability information directly from them, which then helps to feed into the analysis and into the into the strategy and the tools over time. Got it. And how uh, how much or how do you tailor uh, this advice or these insights to every client? Like um, I want to get a feeling of how much consulting work it is versus uh, automatable it all is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a question we get asked a lot. So there's actually a relatively small variation in types of batteries. And therefore, the types of batteries and also relatively small variation in the number of the different suppliers of these materials and the type of material inputs. And that means that there's a huge kind of automation ability capability within it to be able to effectively, you know, there's only so many car makers that these battery makers are selling to. Therefore, there's only so many different sustainability requirements and so on. Um, and so like intentionally in the early days, we are working very closely with this customer and haven't spent a ton of money on automation, but we've built it with the processes in mind where we can automate it all and, and also kind of layer in additional services. For example, management consultants are speaking to us about how can they use this platform to make the boring parts of their job much easier and then do the do the kind of extra work and from a kind of sustainability perspective that's great because so right now so much time is spent on kind of data and analysis and actually so much more time needs to get spent on like the strategy and the implementation and the improvement and so our goal is to really skew the the resources towards that rather than the the number crunching Got it. Maybe one last question um, before I hand over to my colleagues um, on what is your competitive edge? Because I see a lot of companies moving into the space because there's just so much value that you can capture there. Um, so where do you think this is what we do better than anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Good question. So I think for us, we see like two main competitor groups. The first right now is Funnily enough, the management consultants. Um, so like right now, when we're speaking to the, the customer that we've onboarded, their kind of alternative to us was they were going to work with a consultancy on their carbon accounting, a consultancy on climate risk and regulation reporting, another consultancy on their strategy, another consultancy on like broader regulation. And what they were kind of wanting is how do we make us be able to manage all of this within one place? And so effectively, that is what we're doing is bringing together all aspects of sustainability and all parts of the journey from the analysis to the strategy to the implementation in one place. And then in kind of, I guess, the other group in the market that you see is like niche data or traceability tools, which is my background is in supply chain traceability. And so that's where you've seen, which is probably what you're referring to, a lot of uptake in kind of like blockchain traceability. And we see that as something that is very much fixing one specific problem of how do I know where my materials have come from? And how do I know exactly who is in my supply chain and how do I trace my materials between that? For us, we want to kind of take a step back and say, okay, how do we actually make the supply chain as sustainable as possible? 
yes, transparency is one way to get there, but actually in terms of how to do that as impactfully as possible, it's how do we give enough data in order to understand the key impacts and then actually go about implementing and improving those on the ground. And so we're kind of much broader than, than just kind of a data tool or an analytics tool. Thank you, Sarah. Cool. Uh, super interesting. And, and uh, here I have an advantage because I've, I've met Sarah a few times as well. And we've also invested quite a lot into the battery value chain uh, in, in, in a few companies that I think you could be working with. Uh, but one, one question that we always see in this supply chain is that it's super complex and you touched upon it a little bit. Like, how do you actually build enough data and trustworthy data enough to get to the, to get to the mine where a lot of the impact actually happens, like to get to the, the workers and also the climate impact that happens at the source of the materials? Yeah, 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 really good question. So I would say, like, yeah, totally agree with you on the point that, like, supply, the reason why we have problems with supply chains is that they are complex and opaque. We don't, we currently kind of have been for a long time being able to have, like, an attitude of, like, what I don't know doesn't hurt me, and therefore I'm just going to, like, continue on with my with my life and hope for the best. But what you're beginning to see is like regulation is coming in to completely shift that. And on top of that, like just generally like a consumer awareness that supply chains and clean technology isn't quite as clean as, as we thought it would be. And so in terms of like, how do you address the both the complex the complexity of how do you actually get back across to the mine, but also the complexity of just having so many different players in the supply chain. I think the first thing is like doing that effectively, the supply chain analysis is like a materiality analysis of like, what are your biggest impacts and where do you need to focus on first and making sure that you're focusing on the most high impact things rather than necessarily the things that get the most attention. Um, a great example of that would be like child labor is horrible, gets a lot of attention. But actually, when you look at like what are the biggest impacts in the supply chain, there are so many other impacts that also need to have a lot of attention, if not more attention. And so that's where the analysis part comes in to really help the battery makers and car makers prioritize these impacts and say, okay, yes, ultimately we want to get rid of all of these problems, but what are the ones that we're going to work on first? And that's where it comes at both looking at where do you have the highest impacts, but also where do you have the highest ability to influence? And so that's where for a battery maker, initially, if you're quite small, you're not going to be able to get back to mine and go like deep into solving the child labor problems initially, but you can take part in industry groups that are working on these, these issues. And therefore, I think that's one of the big things that we've seen as part of this kind of conversation is helping people recognize that even though they don't, they can't 100% fix any of these problems, they can at least start to start to contribute towards positively impacting them and helping them build the pathway for where they are now, given their size versus, okay, in five years time, this is where the regulation is going to go. This is where you as a company can, can start to have more and more influence. And also you're going to grow as a company and have a lot more kind of stronger ability to leverage your influence as well. Mm. I think I understand. And, and my second question on the same theme with many of these tools where you try to get like gather data gathering tools throughout supply chains, it is, you need a lot of, of power from the top to be able to incentivize the, the suppliers in the supply chain to share their data. 
And in this supply chain, there are a few like different that are very rare that have a lot of power also for their procurers. Like how do you incentivize them to go on the platform and actually share their data? Yeah, yeah, and no, it's a really good question. So that's a large reason why we focused initially on working with high growth European battery makers is because they, because of what I mentioned around the European re regulation coming in, which is battery sustainability regulation, that's kind of the most progressive. On top of that, then kind of like entering into the market, wanting to use sustainability as a unique selling point, justify their price premium and so on, means that they are kind of taking sustainability a lot more seriously. And therefore, they are kind of what we see as like the first movers on pushing sustainability across the supply chain. But because it being like it's being mandated by regulation, we can see that there's already we're also speaking to the larger players that are already beginning to move that. And so our kind of our kind of view of it is that there are already enough players who want to improve sustainability. It's just about them finding each other. And so that's where we're starting. And then gradually over time, as the regulation comes in, as pressure comes in um, more strongly from the, kind of the, the downstream car maker end, you are beginning to already see, you know, in the last few years, how, you know, three years ago, nobody would have talked about transparency and now it's, it's becoming a thing. And so we're kind of positioning ourselves to be able to ride that, ride that wave. Cool. One question that I have, everything that you've brought up, and I may have missed this, is backward looking, the supply chain, but the supply chain and the actual battery supply chain has a full life cycle where these batteries are often taken out of use because they no longer are functional for EVs that the capacity degrades, but then they go into other applications. And I feel like there's a much bigger climate impact in optimizing that and trying to reduce the number of batteries that need to be produced by repurposing. What are you guys doing on the, the back end side of the supply chain? Yeah, really good question. So from the kind of supply chain analysis, taking the holistic view of sustainability, circularity and end of life definitely comes within what we're doing. Um, and But I think to kind of balance that out, I think there's a couple of interesting factors going on. Firstly, that like it takes eight to 10 years for a battery to get to end of life. And so right now we don't actually have a huge number of batteries at end of life. And so in terms of priorities for battery makers and car makers, recycling, end of life, repurposing of batteries is there, but is interestingly not the first thing that they go, they're going to have to move on. And so the way in which our platform works is building out tools and giving them access to the tools as they need it. And so the recycling and end of life aspect of that definitely comes in. And I think the kind of the interesting thing that's coming in with regulation is something called a battery passport, where you're going to have to uniquely identify each individual battery. And that will happen at the point of manufacturer, but then will also come in helpful at the end, point of end of life. And our platform supports the battery makers with integrating that to be able to help them on that journey towards making their batteries as circular as possible and having the systems in place that they need in order to do that. Understood. I think actually one thing I was just going to say there that one of the other interesting things is that actually like we don't have anywhere near enough of batteries going to ever come to end of life at the moment to be able to feed into the, the circular supply chain. And therefore, we're still going to have a huge dependency on 
raw materials. And so that's another big reason why a lot of the focus still needs to be on what's happening upstream in the supply chain. Understood. And how big can something like this get? Do you ultimately go public? Do you get acquired? What a you're not supposed to talk about the goals as a startup for your exit is, but what is the actual big picture for Infields? Where where are you guys in 10 years? Yeah, yeah, really good question. So we're starting in batteries because we see that that's like such a big need that is changing so quickly at the moment. And there's a lot of opportunity to get in now whilst the adoption is still relatively small and fix this problem before we have 100% electric vehicles on the road everywhere. But then we're moving from batteries into automotive, given the kind of overlap in materials, into electronics. And then also you see that there's very similar challenges in a lot of other industries, particularly in clean technology like solar and wind. And so the kind of medium to long-term view is to expand across into other clean tech industries and heavy industries that are facing similar challenges. Awesome, thanks. I think that's everything then on my side. Alex, Fabian, any other last questions for for Infios and Sarah. No, all good. Thank you, Sarah. Awesome. Then, Sarah, thank you for presenting. And now I'm going to move things over to our final section of the night. Before I do, I want to remind everyone, this is the Startup Tank presented by Forward VC, our climate and impact syndicate focused on early stage investors. If you're running a company that's changing the world and interested in applying, you can apply at the startuptank.com or you can reach directly out at Forward VC. And now presented by, of course, Leva, the digital SPV for the modern era. If you want to set up venture investments, you want to pool capital together with other investors, or if you just want a better way of raising money for your round, Leva is the way to do it. Fast, simple, easy. It's much cheaper than the existing solution. You don't have to deal with lawyers. And we're, none of us are a big fan of lawyers, I have to imagine, because it just slows things down on the startup side of things with cash-constrained founders. You need to go fast. But the last and final segment of the startup tank is, of course, dun, 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 crowning a winner. We need a startup of the night. And for that, I'm going to ask Fabian and uh, and Alex to give their feedback in terms of who are your favorite one or two companies? If you had to place a bet today, who would you be betting on and why? And then I will share mine and we can see if we come to some type of agreement. What do you think? You want to go first, Alex? Ooh, I'm unprepared. No pressure. <laughs> um, well, I think... So let's put it this way. So um, I certainly would like to have a, a follow-on with uh, La Roma and Infios, um, just because I believe um, there's a huge impact potential there. It's um, it's a huge market for both of them to tackle, and um, I really like the traction so far, um, especially of La Roma. So um, I would go I would go for the two. Okay, and Fabian? It's super tough. It's so hard to compare yeah. across industries like this uh, because it, you're, you're all doing something very, very important and something very, very cool. I, uh, If I have to go with one, I would likely go with climate crop just due to the size of the impact it can have uh, if they actually succeed and get to market. 
but it's a very tough choice. Yeah, good choice. I think that I think that puts us in a similar boat as well. I think all all six companies here are phenomenal, and you guys were all selected. A lot of companies applied. You are you are hands down some of the greatest founders and companies out there. But for me, while all of these are big businesses, everyone has to eat. And everyone is getting a larger number every single day. And the amount of space that we have for growing is shrinking. The climate's changing and making growing harder. And uh, if Yehuda and team can pull it off with climate crop, with cl- climate crop, then we can grow faster, better yields, more sustainably. So they, they would probably be my number two, number one. And if I had to pick a, a number two, then I think I would I would tie it in with that and go with um, Marina and uh, Liroma, just because what they're doing, producing more is one thing, but if you have a, a ship with lots of holes in it, like a food waste, then your ship eventually sinks. So if, if they can tie together that food waste system so that we have less food being wasted, then that's a major, a major um, pin in the coffin of climate change as well. So I would go with climate crop one and Liroma two. So then it's, it sounds like climate crop or Laroma. What would you guys say if we had to choose one startup of the night? Is there a consensus or is it one where we're going to have to have a, have a tie? Can we have a tie? Depends. We don't have any, uh, we don't have any penalty kicks here and this is remote. So they can't fight to the death. So we've got to come up with something. <laughs> I vote for Laroma. So I think you, I'm a big fan of, uh, of what you guys do, um, but I'm going to give my vote tonight to, to Marina. I'll stick with, with my vote. Then. So then I guess it is a tie. <laughs> okay. And then I will put the, put the, put the I will break, I will break the tie and I will go with, I will go with Yehuda and what they're doing. Although all of you guys, incredible job presenting. Definitely. Everyone, everyone nailed it. We've gotten much better with the timing of having the startup pitch get it all out there you guys are getting really good at it and i hope it, this helps you guys with raising the round try to set up meetings with alex and fabi and i would recommend posting your contact information in the youtube and the linkedin chats uh, and then yeah good luck with the pitch take the videos from this when you reach out to investors and go change the world now um before we before we wrap things up just a quick uh, quick thank you from my side again um, this is the startup tank. We feature the world's best and most interesting climate companies. So if you're building a company that's changing the world, fighting climate change, and building an epic business in the process, be sure to apply to startuptank.com. And we'll also consider you for investment with Forward VC Syndicate. So Forward, the number four, ward.vc, we invest in climate and impact companies that move the world forward. If you're an accredited investor interested in learning more and joining our syndicate, this is not a solicitation, but you can go check out our website and find out some interesting details. And Alex and Fabian, I want to thank you guys for presenting as well and being here on the panel. Where's the best place for people to connect with you guys? Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, I guess the best place is to connect uh, via email. Just posting my email right now. Looking forward to hearing from you. Well, that was a private chat. <laughs> Likewise. No, thank you so much for, for taking the time. And I think also for on my side, it's always good to get it over email.
I'll also put, put it there in the chat. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really interesting. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and thanks to everybody who tuned in, enjoyed this, and. If you were here, be sure to subscribe on YouTube or your podcasting player of choice and share this around so the other great founders here get some extra exposure for their companies and can try to make the world better. Until next time, it's getting late. Most of us are in Europe. We're probably hungry and the Israelis are probably even hungrier. So let's call it a night, folks. This has been your the segment of the Startup Tank, the June 20th edition. Uber Morgan, Norskin, and everyone else who was on here, Infios, uh, Phoenix, Car Phoenix Carbon, Climate Crop, Buzz Up, Laroma, Earth Automations. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, cheers.